folks, and welcome to the Sense and Theory Podcast. I'm Theory. And I'm Sense. And today we have another installment of everyone's favorite episode, Change, Change My View! view. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, hopefully you guys are enjoying these, and uh, today we've got another one for you. Um, today... Uh, it'll be me, uh, well, since we'll be attempting to change my view, uh, in support of isolationism. Um, um, isolationism is something that, uh, you know, has been a part of America pretty much since our founding. Um, if you look at, uh, George Washington's farewell address, uh, you know, he said to watch out for foreign entanglements. Right, right. All the way up to, you know, Woodrow Wilson keeping us out of World War One and everything like that. So what is isolationism to be to be exact before we get into our our format that's a good plan i like putting everything out on the table (laughs) isolationism is a category of foreign policies that leaders put in that kind of keep us detached from the rest of the world so you can have different sorts of uh you know isolationism you can have uh, military isolationism where we say we're not going to get involved in in foreign wars and stuff you can have economic isolationism uh, where, you know, you, you don't give out foreign aid and you, you know, and today uh, we're going to be talking mostly about military isolation. Yeah. Primarily about military isolationism. Uh, I, I would also note just to kind of, you know, get it across there. You could have a candidate who, for instance, like, I don't know, Donald Trump, who <laughs> believes in military interventionism, but then wants to isolate us, uh, as far as immigration is concerned. Right. So isolation, you know, isolationism is a, is a broad category that multiple things can fall under. But traditionally, when, you know, Rand Paul, Ron Paul, libertarians, conservatives, when they talk about isolationism, the, the first thing that springs to mind is military isolation. Right. Keep us out of the giant mega wars that we're spending billions and billions of dollars on and, you know, fucking up the entire world. Basically. Yeah, yeah. And it, and it's funny because you know, it's kind of it's my job to to change your view on this and mm-hmm. and I'm I'm squarely in the middle. I feel like, you know, I'm the guy uh that would I've said it before. Uh you know, go punch the bully in the mouth to to protect the kids. So I strongly believe that uh as a world power with uh the world's greatest military might, we ought to use it to do good. And and you know, sometimes that means punching the bully in the face. Uh, what I found in the course of researching for this episode um, was that it doesn't always go the way we planned. Right. So this is going to be a, a kind of a funny episode for me mm-hmm. because uh, I may have actually backed off of my own views <laughs> in preparing for the episode. Ah, I don't know. We'll see. Ah, the potential dreaded reverse changed my view. <laughs> uh, so as you guys remember, what we've done is, uh, you know, in the week leading up to this show, uh, I laid out my points. I, I think I laid out six for this one, six points why I support isolationism. And since has looked at them and done his research and he has, you know, points to counter them with. I'm going to ruthlessly attack them. <laughs> and I haven't Not seen quite. any of that going into today's episode. So for That's me, right. this is hearing this for the first time. He's going to be surprised and <laughs> flabbergasted. No, actually, I'm going to play right into your hands, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> we shall see what happened. So um, I think if, if you're going to talk about isolationism, you got to start right there at my point one. The 2018 defense budget is $700 billion. Touche. Touche. So we are spending astronomical amounts of money on, on defense. A lot of that is to get involved in, uh, you know, in foreign military uh, operations, if you will. We can't call it war because Congress well, doesn't call it war. Well, but. that's the thing. I mean, I, I don't think anybody um, would fault us for spending money for our defense, but so we know that the United States spends, uh, I think, I think the number two spot on the list as far as defense spending, we're double or, or <laughs> over double. Um, there's no question that America spends a, a ton of money on defense. Right. But we're and, not just talking about like missile defense and, uh, you know, flying sorties protection, you know, protecting us. We're talking about a lot of times, uh, you know, getting involved in the Middle East. Right. Uh, we're talking uh you know, CIA overthrowing dictators. We're talking, right. right. It gets, um, it gets much more nebulous and nefarious. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. And, and 700, when we're talking about numbers that big, it's really hard to wrap your head around the scale of them. So to, I had to kind of put that in perspective and, and, and say, well, we've got an $18 trillion GDP. Mm-hmm. So 700 billion 
uh, you know, that's a that's a small portion of GDP, actually. It's mm, I, well, I mean, yeah, looking looking at it like that, looking at it as a portion of GDP. But I would I would say look at it as a portion of our budget. Okay, you know what I mean, and and it is far it is and away, far and away yeah. the largest swath of our budget, and and I agree we could do we could do lots of great things with that money. I mean, we're talking about states possibly going bankrupt right now. Yeah, you know, yeah. teacher pensions being forty billion dollars in the hole, and we're spending seven hundred billion dollars right uh, on these nebulous defense projects. So, but I would ask you, like. How do you put a price on the suffering of the world? In a lot of cases, these military operations, um, you know, say, look at the chemical weapon attacks, you know, Mm. assuming that's real, um, stopping Assad from from gassing his own people. How do you put a price on that? Well, I I guess what I'm saying is, do we need to spend um, $700 billion to stop Assad from gassing his own people? So there's, there's a difference here, and I think it's important to make this distinction early on. Um, obviously, there are times, I think, in, to any, any, anybody who's like pro-isolationism, where, you know, if you know that, uh, let's say, you know, Germany in World War II is developing a nuclear bomb. Sure. That you have to counter that. North uh, Korea. If, uh, and, you know, and like you said, there's also a portion of us that doesn't want to see humanity and suffering. So, you know, again, if you have somebody like Assad, who's, who's, you know, potentially I'll say, uh, <laughs> gassing his own citizens, uh, then wait, you want wait, to step are you in one of help. these conspiracy theorists that, that doesn't think just, it happened? Just going to leave it at potentially <laughs> just going to leave it there. But anyway, so the question is though, could we not have a military for half that, that would be able to step in and stop Assad. Now, now, hang on. Why do we need a budget of seven hundred billion a year? A year. Okay. I feel and the like- reason we need a budget of seven hundred billion a year is because we have to be ready to intervene anywhere at any time for anything. If if we're just looking at our defense, like I said, the next closest spender is somewhere. I, I want to say somewhere around two hundred thirty billion. So we could drop to $350 billion and still be <laughs> and still wildly outspending them. them yeah, you know? yeah, so yeah, it's that, beyond our own defense. That, you know? that makes a lot of sense. But again, I would bring you back to the point, like, how do you put a price on, on the world's suffering? Like, yeah, we are kind of acting like the world police, but at some point you need police to put things in order and, and, and catch criminals and stop bad guys. Yeah. Um, you know, at... At what point does that become your responsibility? Right, right. And I, I think I think what you're saying, and I think it, it kind of goes beyond the price tag. You know what I mean? Like so, so we still have to be able to do these things. And that, as much as I would like to say, you know, the the <laughs> the simple practical guy that I am, it costs too damn much. Let's stop. There are other considerations. However, that's where I think point two comes into play. <laughs> Uh, point two, we often get entangled in disputes and regions, which we don't fully understand, which leads to protracted occupations. And that is absolutely true. There's no way. I don't think anyone could stand here and argue that against that point. The, the Sunnis and the Shias and Iraq. <laughs> you know? I mean, there it is. I mean, the truth is like, we're never going to know the results of our actions. So, mm-hmm. so acting in the world stage carries risk, you know? Um, things are going to, going to backfire when, when you try to help out, sometimes things go terribly, terribly wrong. Um, maybe more than go right, but some still go right. I think (laughs) I would say, I mean, as far as I think a lot of people knew, I think even people that supported the Iraq war knew, I'm sorry, means I was going to get the Iraq war, Iraq, Iraq, the Iraq war knew that um, there was going to be this, this uh, I don't think it's a civil war, but like, what, what do they call it? Sectarian violence afterwards? Sure. Everyone knew it was a quagmire. They saw Vietnam coming again, you know? And, and, and I think we see that but, uh, in all these places. But that, that's you know, an egregious example. I mean, there are some examples where we've gotten involved in, in other countries and terrible things haven't happened. Uh, we captured Noriega in Panama. Uh, <laughs> we we did we did you're right uh we rolled in we rolled into panama banners waving 
Guns on display. We killed something like 3,000 people, leveled an entire neighborhood. We did level a neighborhood. Uh, and to arrest a guy that we had propped up to begin with. Yes. <laughs> yes. To arrest a drug dealer that we created. <laughs> yeah. God, this was so much harder than than I thought it was going to be going in. I was like, oh, I'll just, you know, look up some uh, some military engagements that have a, a high favorability. <laughs> in the, and as soon as I go digging, man, I get smacked with shit like Noriega. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like, yeah, I thought, oh, yeah, we, we captured him. We stopped him. He was a madman and, a, you know, a dictator on the rise. And, and I mean. And he was. Well, so, and he was. He was. So here we go. So, so, so let's take it back to, to my point, putting a price on suffering. That neighborhood that got leveled, mm-hmm. was that worth the, you know, the, the, the political um, prisoners that, that Noriega had? Was that worth. Uh, the people he killed. Well, it is um, to it, stay in power. Like, you know, how do you balance those things? It is if it stopped after Noriega, right? Well, yeah, and it didn't. <laughs> I mean, it's still it's still largely a. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't call it a uh, fascist state, but you know, we they still have you know kind of mock elections, and then, you know they still they're run by dictators more or less. You know, they are still they have all are they of, jailing political dissidents and, the, well, and journalists? Basically, you like, know, actually the thing with the thing with Panama is that what it actually did, uh, in a sense, was restore the the white Panamanian population back into the ruling class, taking out Noriega because Noriega had built a coalition uh, based off the black and mestizo Panamanians that that like. Uh, are the majority of the country. And so basically control reverted back to the affluent. You know, it's it's funny. They this say, is not sounding good, man. Get this. Get this. Uh, they say that, like, you know, there was all this, you know, Panamanian support when we came rolling into Panama. Uh, turns out, like, all those, it, what, what nobody, what, none of the news stations failed to, you know, mention, sorry, is that all these people who were like, yes, yes, America, yo, we're, we're so happy you're here. We're speaking perfect English. <laughs> in Panama, <laughs> you know, because it was the rich, white, affluent Touché. Panamanians. Touche. So, so fuck Panama. Maybe Panama is a bad example. Okay. Uh, what about Bosnia? Yeah. Right. Uh, our bombings of Bosnia led directly to a peace treaty. In fact, we signed it just up the road from uh, from Kentucky, up in Toledo, Ohio. Bosnia. Bo- Bosnia is a good point. I mean, Bosnia is a, it's, it's a good point. Oh, yeah. it's over folks. It's, <laughs> I will, I will, I will give you Bosnia. There's, there's caveats, but I, I don't think at the end of the day, what America and NATO did in Bosnia, put an end to the, to the shit. Yeah. I mean, it, it uh, now I think there are people who will make the argument that, that whole thing could have been solved diplomatically to begin with. Oh, of course you can make the argument. We can go back in time. Well, but here's the thing. Here's the thing. The, the agreement that was eventually signed was just like a later version of the four previous agreements that they had going. When you look at that, they didn't sign it till the bombs dropped, man. But, but were the bombs, what caused it to be signed because other things were going on. You know, on. if action carries a risk, we've got to at least credit the action with the with the good with the good result when we get a good result. Come on. Uh I will I will okay, like I said, like I said to begin there, I will I will give you Bosnia okay. with a personal caveat. I'm not expecting anybody else. <laughs> but, All right. Uh how about the Somalian Civil War? Uh we're still in Somalia. We're still in Somalia? We're still in Somalia. We're actually building up in Somalia. Uh, okay, so I was going to talk about the Battle of Mogadishu. <laughs> uh, you know, we lost 18 soldiers and yeah. millions of dollars in military hardware, including a couple Blackhawks. But uh, yeah. we did deliver over 50,000 pounds of food to starving Somalians. That no, were, there is, there is, we absolutely, we did help people survive. Who we fed, yeah. Thousands and thousands of starving Somalians right. using also, military intervention. So we also uh, completely ignored the Rwandan genocide. We did, yeah. But so here's here's what I'm asking you though: why why the Somalis? You know, I can't answer that. I'm not a policymaker. Uh, right, I'm not right, a right. policy wonk. Well, but I'm saying like, but we should do something about Rwanda too, right? I tend to agree. Yeah, and absolutely. we should do something about the Georgians, right? <laughs> Probably. And we got to go into Kosovo. 
Oh, Jesus. And we got it. You know what I mean? Well, that's why the budget's $700 billion, man. (laughs) Yeah, no joke. And it's still not enough, you know, to tell you the truth. So what's the alternative? I mean, should should we have turned our back on on starving Somalians? We did to Rwanda. But should we have there? I think... uh, Just because we did in Rwanda doesn't make it a good idea in Somalia. Here's the thing. I think that there comes a point where, yeah, man, we have to only get involved if there is a clear and present threat to us. Yeah, that's yeah. Uh, and, and that's a good point. I mean, I, initially I had Desert Storm on the list, you know, primarily because yeah. I wanted to talk about those weird ass trading cards that they uh, <laughs> yeah. they gave us in, in that was elementary school. Yeah, I remember like like tank trading cards and gunners and like talk about guns in schools like. Yeah, that was no. fifth grade. No, man. it was it was really weird. I mean, there was a trading card boom back then, but there, yeah, like war cards, man. <laughs> war it was, cards. It was that weird. was really strange. Weird. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. Because I, you know, Operation Desert Storm is another one that's that's kind of hailed as a success. But then I got to thinking of it, and I'm like, well, this is directly to your point. Yeah, I mean, it led to our protracted engagement in the Middle East, absolutely. the rise of ISIS. You know? Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, and and yeah, and then up into so the you Iraq have a really war. strong point, but at the same time, I feel like. There's still some good to come out of th- these things. And who knows what the alternative was? You know, who knows what the alternative was if, if we didn't um, if we didn't engage uh, in the Middle East? You know, I don't well, know what that would look like. Maybe maybe we have a nuclear power rise. Maybe maybe we end in, in nuclear destruction. So, you know, it's, it's real easy to look back and say, well, we should have you know, we should have made this decision, mm-hmm. um, you know, for ABC and re- ABC reasons. But truthfully. Like you don't know, you know, hindsight is 2020. Yeah, no, I'll give you that. It's just so to me, that's why it's all the more important that there be a firm cause. Like, so, for instance, in in my opinion, actually, uh, once the genocide um, got underway and I know that's a shame because you're going to lose some people. But once the genocide got underway in Rwanda, I would have went in. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I want things like that to stop. But I can't I can't go in because it might happen and I can't go in everywhere and I can't be everywhere. And I think this is something that will come out in other points. Right now, we've had this whole conversation based on the expectation that it's up to us. Right. America. And it's like not. Well, what else was going to happen. Right. And that's the problem, I think. You know what I mean? And, and we'll we'll address that in, in coming points, I think. OK, so um, point three um, even when we do the right thing, you know, even, even when we go somewhere where we should go, our methods, be it drone strikes, airstrikes or whatever, end up alienating the people that we intend to protect. Right. How many times have we seen this across and, the world? And to me, this, this goes right back to the last point. I mean, there are inherent risks of military action. Mm-hmm. You drop in bombs, there's going to be collateral damage. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's going to be civilian casualties. Um, you know, ideally... We're going to weigh the pros and cons and and make the right decision. But, you know, that's largely out of our hands as people and, and in our leaders' hands. So what's important is that our leaders make good decisions about what's going on. Now, that doesn't always happen, obviously. Right. Um, right. But if if the odds are good that we're going to come out with uh, with positive situations, then, you know, you roll the dice and, and you hope for the best. Well, I see, here's the thing, though. For instance, um, there was a fabulous write-up, I think it was back in February, uh, in The Intercept, and I will hunt this down and make sure that it's part of the source list. You guys can check the show notes for it. Um, But there was a write-up about this drone strike in Afghanistan that ended up um, horribly disfiguring uh, this little girl. I mean, it it was terrible. It, It opened up her stomach. They had to sew her back together, you know, leg gone. Her entire family died. Um, And basically, they were riding in a truck. Drone took out the truck. Now, the reason the drone took out the truck is they believed that there were, I think, one or two members of Al-Qaeda, ISIS, I can't remember, may have been in the truck. Sure. Well, the truck was like a taxi. You know what I mean? So here's the thing, man. Like, yes, that whoever we took out may have been somebody, you know, very important. Um, if, If you read the article, it doesn't sound like they were. But, you know, fair enough. We were operating under the assumption that that's who that was. But there's an inherent problem with that to begin with. We're going through these countries trying to hunt down a guy. 
<laughs> this ain't this ain't you know battles between you know standing armies and stuff. You're right. It's it's not you know it's not war. It's 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 military engagements. And when you're talking about this kind of thing, I mean, typically a war would require congressional approval and oversight. We're right, talking about right. engagements, and it's uh, you know lesser government officials deciding what to do. And if they're deciding well. Um, then I feel like it's a good thing. For example, uh, before Bush, the the doctrine they call it the Powell Doctrine, and and that's essentially the set of standards um, that that our leaders are asking uh, before they get involved in in military occupations. So right, it goes like right. this: um, Is a vital national security interest threatened? Uh, do we have a clear, attainable objective? Have the risks and costs been fully and frankly analyzed? Have all other nonviolent policy means been fully exhausted? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, you know, that's to your yeah, points there. Yeah. Like, <clears throat> ideally, we are exhausting all those resources before we get engaged in a military conflict. Uh, is there a plausible exit strategy to avoid endless entanglement? Have the consequences of our action been fully considered? Is the action supported by the American people? And do we have genuine, broad international support? You know, based on... on those questions, I feel like we're doing a good job on the world stage. Well, no, no, no. That addresses almost everything that you've brought up. Because, right, I can sit here and I can say that that's the doctrine, but then I can go back and I can look and say, what have we done that fits those criteria? Well, fair enough. And 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 we do not follow the Powell Doctrine anymore. Right, we're operating right. on the Bush Doctrine now, yeah, yeah. Uh, which is make no distinction between terrorists and the nations that harbor them. Yeah. Hold both to account. Take the fight to the enemy overseas before they can attack us here at home. Mm-hmm. Confront threats before they fully materialize. Yeah. Advance liberty and hope as an alternative to the enemy's ideology of repression and fear. Yeah. Now that starts to sound real shaky and scary real fucking quick. Yeah, but I think, so I think like even, so going back to what I was saying with the drone strikes, even before you get there, if you're going to look for a guy, Right? How are you going to meet the Pow Doctrine criteria? Well, let's right? see. Because let's, let, let's yeah. Do let's, we have a clear attainable objective? Uh, no. Yes. No. We want the guy. Well, uh, you attainable you, objective. We want the guy. You want the guy, but whether or not it's attainable, uh, it's attainable. attainable. We we because we captured two lieutenants in in Mogadishu. You know, like yeah, it's attainable. No, we, but see that no. Okay, so that that perfectly illustrates my point. In Mogadishu, we knew exactly where they were. We had hard intelligence. And in fact, one of the problems in the Battle of Mogadishu was that we waited a little bit longer than we should have because we wanted to make sure we knew where those guys were. There you go. Meanwhile, this drone strike over here where we just think that a possible Al-Qaeda guy may or may not be on this tax, we are not not following that doctrine. Right. We're not following. Right. The answer in that situation is a no to do we have an attainable objective. Therefore, military intervention should have been off the table if we're following the Powell Doctrine, which we're right. Well, I'm arguing that I'm arguing that the the scope of our mission Almost makes it inherently impossible to follow the Powell Doctrine. I kind of disagree. Well, wait a minute. I want you to consider this. Oftentimes, with these drone strikes, we're we're acting on intelligence as quickly as we possibly can. But then it's you know it's five hours later. By the time that we can send the drone out, the guy may or may not still be in the compound. May or may not still be at the wedding. May or may not. So all those hard answers that he's saying that we need, you can't have them for these drone strikes. Well, then. Possibly drone strikes should be off the table. You know, Fair I'm enough. not. I'm not arguing for for drone strikes specifically. Right. Um, what but, I what I am arguing for is that sometimes when we have clear attainable objectives, I mean, we can go down the list. Uh, we've we've evaluated the risks and the costs. Um, we've got a plausible exit strategy. To me, under the power. No, 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 no. I'm saying if we do. That's. I'm not saying that. That the, but we never do. We're still in Somalia. <laughs> I know. I know. We're under still the in Bush our, doctrine, you know, not yeah. under the Powell doctrine. No, no, no. So, so I'm making an no, argument for minute, isolationism in a in a place that's that's better than we're at now. We're not in a good place. Uh, we're not in a good place for interventionism right now. Obviously, our leaders yeah. are are not doing a good job. But that doesn't mean we can't do a better job. Is what I'm saying. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. I take your point. I as far as an exit strategy. Though, as far as having a clear exit strategy, that that's a tall order. 
That's that's a tall thing to ask, man. Because you yourself said we can't predict the outcomes of our well, actions. You can't predict it, but you can try. So so sure, I can say, well, hey, for instance, let's take it back to the Civil War, right? Reconstruction was an exit strategy. Reconstruction was a clearly defined plan that hey, this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna go into the South. We're gonna you know. Uh, make the elections more fair, make sure the black people receive their rights. Uh, we're going to require these loyalty oaths and all these other things that they wanted. And the shit went horribly awry. Hindsight's South, 2020, man. But what I'm saying it is... It doesn't always go south. Like what... <laughs> there, there, are, there are examples out there of, of it going right. And there's always going to be some, you know, something to point at and malign the efforts. But, you know, sometimes it's right. Uh, dropping 50,000 pounds of food in military jets on starving Somalians was a good decision. Supposing that that food reached the Somalians who were starving. In fact, you have stories all over the place about warlords hijacking those shipments, using them to extort, you know, people who live in Somalia and so on and so forth. And, and what that speaks to, what I'm getting to here is that you can take the POW doctrine and you can hold it up and you can say, well, we're going to follow these guidelines. But sometimes the nature of the missions we are undertaking by, by, uh, that we have to take because we've decided that we're the police of the world make it really hard to yeah. follow those guidelines. So then those guidelines almost become an enabling factor because they're like, well, we're going to try to follow these guidelines. Okay, cool. Let's go do it. And then it never works, man. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I mean, touche. Yeah, I, I, I get what you're saying here. Um, I feel like it goes back to the idea that I am arguing for interventionism that does work. Right. And we're not doing interventionism well right now. Right. So I feel like there's there's ways we can make it work. For one, hand, hand power back to Congress. Stop getting in, in military engagements before Congress... Uh, has a chance to evaluate it, and although right. there's there's questions about you know acting quickly and and you know can Congress even well, pass a budget? How are they going to decide to take us into war? Like the 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 overall, I think the overall scope. I don't I don't disagree with you. That's the thing is like so I'm I'm maybe not even a true through and through isolationist like like Rand Paul, you know, because I do believe you know I hold this, the same belief that you do that the intervention. It is sometimes necessary. It it could be done right. But what I'm saying is right now, it's almost like we need to hit the pause button on it because the whole situation is almost forcing our hand. And I think my next point kind of kind of speaks to that. Okay. Uh point four is we have subsidized the world's defense while other countries invest their money in domestic social programs. And I gotta I gotta hand you this just off the top because there's really nothing uh, nothing that I can say to that. I mean, we've got uh, Flint with poisoned water still, and we're spending mm -hmm. seven hundred billion dollars on defense. Oh, that's what um, we're spending. That's what we're spending on defense. Meanwhile, we are responsible for twenty two percent of the United Nations budget. Uh, the next closest person wow. is at nine percent. Now, granted, you know we have the highest GDP, and you know the, the UN's decided that that's our fair share and, and whatnot. Uh, as far as NATO, um, of the things that NATO owns, like unto itself, that's just NATO, uh, we pay 22% of that as well. The next closest is, I, uh, I want to say it's like, uh, it's, I think the United Kingdom at like 14%. Um, but then effectively, here's the thing. And like, the way that's on top of our $700 billion yes, defense budget. Yes. And, and well, but here's the thing. Now, this is not on top. What I'm about, what I'm about to explain is kind of complicated, but, but check this out. We pay 22% of what NATO owns that is unto NATO, right? Okay. Now, what NATO owns that is NATO is about $2 billion, right? So we're not talking about a high amount of money, but- as when you people, say what they own, you mean like their equipment and, and yes, holdings? And, yes, and uh, training facilities and, yeah. and, and just everything. Like, okay. what is NATO, right? But here's the secret. That, that force of NATO that is just NATO won't stand up to shit. So in reality, they're relying on the $700 billion <laughs> that we spend on our defense. You know what I'm saying? That comprises, if you take all the countries, that's 76% of the effective NATO for, uh, fighting forces budget. 
is our military spending. Yeah. Like, so, so if NATO fields an army for whatever reason, we are footing the bill for 76% of the assets at their disposal. Right. Right. Yeah. I would say, you know, again, we're, we're talking about money and, and I cannot justify spending money on questionable military interventions when we've got so many problems at home. Yeah. Well, even whether it's giving money to NATO or whether it's spending, you know, money to uh, intervene in Iran or Syria or Libya or, you know, the CIA uh, deposing dictatorships or hell even, uh, you know, any of the wild US and business shit that we do. interests yeah. in South America, you know, United Fruit. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> Jinx. Uh, I told you, I started thinking, I, I went into this episode thinking, you know, well, surely I can find enough evidence of us actually being the good guy. Yeah. And the sad part is like, once I, once, <laughs> once I prepared, I knew this episode was going to be a shit show because mm. I can't sit here and, and defend interventionism the way we're doing it now. Yeah, yeah. You know, so my only choice is to is to say, well, well we could do it well. <laughs> you know, what's funny is like with this point, I and, and I'm gonna be honest, I kind of I tailored this point for you. That's no, where I the, gave it. That's where their domestic I, social programs came I got from. Nothing for yeah. you. But but actually, my point there, it isn't. It you know, I, I dropped those numbers or whatever. It's not about those numbers. To me, it's about the mindset. Yeah. You, you see what I'm saying? Like the world. At the same time that we get maligned and we catch all this shit and everything, the world expects us to, like, for instance, we caught all kinds of shit for not going into Rwanda. Right. We also caught all kinds of shit for our handling of Somalia. Right. We also caught all kinds of shit for Iraq. You know what I mean? So, like, and and anything that we do, you know, anything worth doing is worth doing right. I'm not saying that that lets us off the hook for the mistakes that we made in any of those places. But I think the world has as much as they like to say that like we you know swing our power around and you know us basically tries to big dick everybody you know sure we do i think the world also kind of expects it of us kind of and, pushes and, us to and do they that. kind of yeah they kind of like uh talk out the other side of their face and like you know they're like well you should cough up the most and they know because you know da, 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 you know so i think isolationism a, a, a limited retraction into isolationism is going to be the only way to break that mindset for everybody. I mean, yeah. I, I think, and it's well, unfortunate. Here's a thought. Here's a thought. But, Cause uh, you know, I think a lot of people will say that a lot of our intervention is actually to protect business interests and, right. and increase business interests. So is it possible that, uh, uh, you know, intervening in the middle East, say for, for oil is actually benefiting America, you know, with lower gas prices and, and a stronger economy and, you know, people who create businesses in the same, you know, the line of trickle down. I think, I think is, is there any, you know, is there any truth to that? Yes. But personally, am I willing to see how we do without it in light of all the lives and shit and property that we destroyd? Yeah. You know what I mean? So like that, that's what I'm saying. Like when we get into those, those weird nebulous reasons for why we have to go into this place or that place. Um, yeah, I mean, who's, who's to say like without, uh, just off the top of my head, like without the oil that's come in from Iraq, uh, with, uh, things, but, but see without pipelines that were built without business deals. I mean, a lot of these things are to protect our allies and our allies business interests. Um, you know, if we want to keep friends in the world stage, sometimes you got to defend your friend, even though he's the asshole at the bar that was hitting on the guy's girlfriend. Yeah. You know? Like sometimes well, will, you're in that in that weird position. I will say about oil though, what bottomed uh, the oil prices out was the the fracking or whatever. So you know what I mean, and like the offshore drilling. So as as you can see, something else presented itself that maybe you know what I mean. Like I, so you're I, just saying, tough. damned if you do, damned if you don't. You're, yeah, you're saying I there's so many there's so, there's so many, many diff- possible downsides. Yeah, yeah, that that the the benefits never or so rarely outweigh the risks. Yeah, to me, that, that that's what it comes down to. Because what we it, we have to remember, it's easy to you know look at the nightly news and like forget about it and stuff. But we have to remember the impact that we're creating in these countries and the fact that a lot of the problems that we have today stem from intervention in the first place. Yeah, it's really true. You know what and, I mean? And it's impossible to deny. Yeah. It's impossible to deny. Yeah. So I think, 
you know, we've been talking about this in terms of, you know, money and our impact, you know, abroad. But for me, point five, one of the big reasons that I, I want to go the isolationist route is the domestic impact. Um, point five, the president's ability to engage us in military actions has far exceeded the office's constitutional authority and needs to be reined in before it's abused worse than it has been. Look, I 100% agree with that. Um, mm. But here's my only argument. It, it goes back to the Powell Doctrine and, and whether we're doing things right versus whether we can do things right. I don't think you have to walk all the way to isolationism uh, to fix the executive overreach uh, right. you know, that we have right now. I, I, I don't think you have to go all the way back. We can find uh, a middle ground. There's my centrist well, bias. <laughs> well, here's, here's the thing. I mean, and you may be right. You, you absolutely may be right. But in my head, the most effective way for us to get across, because when you get into uh, executive orders and stuff, it's, it's basis in the Constitution is, is, is really wonky well, anyway. Uh, yeah. So uh, the reason I say that is because I think the best way for us to walk that shit back is for the people, is for the populace to reject this shit until they get it straightened out. So, for instance, every time they come to us and they say, I want to go into Kosovo, I want to go into Somalia, we just say no. And until they get the hint that, no, you, if you don't have congressional approval, no. Right. You know, period. Well, the War Powers Act uh, allows military action for 60 days without any hint of congressional approval. Yeah. And it's been that way for a long, long time. And yeah. presidents going back and back and back have uh, abused that even, even stepped yeah. beyond the 60 days Absolutely. prescribed by the War Powers Act. And that's yeah. another, and that is, that is a law where, you know, I'm, I'm all for the uh, strict interpretation of laws and stuff like that. But that's a law that made a lot more sense 200 years ago when it took three weeks to get communication, to round up Congress, to get them all to D.C. to vote on something. Right, well, I mean, I, I don't expect much out of Congress at all. I can't yeah. imagine them like reading over military intelligence and deciding in a timely fashion whether to get involved in a military conflict. Right. Like it's almost crazy to think about that many completely inept people yeah, doing yeah. something on such a scale. So so on some point, I'm I'm OK with giving executive uh, power a little bit of time, but what you what you have is a total egregious abuse of that. Right. Um. You know, Clinton faced scrutiny over Kosovo. He bombed longer than sixty days mm -hmm. uh, prescribed by the War Powers Resolution. Uh, Obama completely eviscerated the War Powers Act uh, by establishing a no fly zone in Libya. Yeah. Um, both sides of Congress were pretty darn pissed about that um, and said, "Hey, you should have come to us for authorization." Um, and for those of you that don't know, it's, it's funny because every time someone says no fly zone, I kind of have to chuckle. Uh, a no fly zone is not just like drawing a circle on a map and yeah, going like, yeah. you can't fly here. No, no, no. Uh, Secretary of Defense Robert Gates explains a no fly zone begins with an attack to destroy the air defenses. And then you can fly planes around the country and not worry about our guys being shot down. But that's the way it starts. Yeah. So no, it's complete air superiority. It's not. Yeah. yeah. It's bombing the shit out of their anti-air, so <laughs> yeah. we can bomb the shit out of them. Which so, may or may not be placed on a hospital, a SAM site, or something. I'm just throwing that out there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, seriously, I mean, okay. man. Okay. Yeah. So that's what I said when I got in. When I got into this, um, you know, I thought I would have some kind of uh, moral ground to stand on, and it and and I don't. It, at any point, I mean, well, they have us. Here's the thing, man. They have us over a barrel. So like, so part, that's what I'm saying about, you know, just a second ago, part of this isolationism in me is me going back at them at the poker table is me like calling their, calling their bluffing away. Cause this is the thing. This is only going to stop when we resist these wars, like hardcore, full stop. You can't when, resist it because look, it had, no, wait let me tell you. It's happened. You it's, can't resist it. And let me tell you why. Um, Hillary Clinton, her mm -hmm. State Department uh, was part of one of the biggest overreaches, uh, as far as I'm concerned, mm -hmm. uh, with, with military action in, in Libya. Mm -hmm. And we bombed these shit out of them without congressional approval. But what happens when you say, I don't support Hillary Clinton? You get called a sexist. Right. You get called an alt-right Nazi. Uh, I've been called a hater and told that I have, I have no reason to not 
give Hillary Clinton all her achievements. Well, yeah. motherfucker, I don't think that you should bomb the shit out of countries without congressional approval. Like, why yeah. can't I have that? Right, right. Why can't I have that? And when you and when you look back at the at the Democrats, it's it's a it's a consistent problem with them. It's right. also a consistent problem with, with Republicans. The, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> but my but my point is when you say like we have a chance to to you know to walk them back. I'm not sure. I just talked to myself no, in a complete I, I, circle. Here. I I think we do, and I'm gonna tell you why. There was a time in this country not that long ago when they were terrified of the population's isolationism, and there was a focused propaganda effort in this country to convince the American people that being isolationist was akin to being a racist or something else. This stretches back, for instance, Woodrow Wilson, when he was running for reelection, ran on the platform. He kept us out of war. Now, as soon as he got reelected, you know, he found a way to drag us into World War One. But I'm saying an entire presidential campaign. And I mean, literally an entire presidential campaign was about how isolationist the candidate was. That's how it used to be. The whole Pearl Harbor, uh, Pearl Harbor thing. Uh, whether or not FDR knew that they were going to hit Pearl Harbor and allowed it to happen, that only exists because he knows that people don't give a shit about about oh, what's going on a, in you're Europe. You're such a history nerd. I can't. No, I, I can't even follow you here. Are you saying that because of the I'm because saying, of those propaganda campaigns, like the ripples are still affecting us? Like, I'm saying you, that this is the end result of those ripples. What I'm saying is, 70 years ago, presidents were terrified to ask us for war. Right. And and look at where we're at today. Okay. That's Touché. what I'm getting at. So Touché. the only way to fix this is for us to make them terrified to ask us for war again. Now, now we complain, but we make it a partisan thing, which is the biggest crock of shit well, I ever heard in my life. Well, that's not quite true, man, because when, when Obama stepped over the 60-day uh, War Powers Act, you had Democrats and Republicans in Congress going, hold the fuck up. Not but look what happened. Uh, the White House came back with uh, with their lawyers and uh, and and Hillary Clinton said, uh, we do not need congressional approval for action in Libya. The State Department said there was no hostility, quote unquote, in Libya uh, within the meaning of the war powers resolution. So at that <laughs> point, they stepped completely outside, uh, you know, uh, of 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 even the, the the pieces that we've given them, the executive overreaches that that we have allowed and given them, uh, mm -hmm. they stepped completely outside of it. And Congress was mad. But what I'm asking you is, people were mad. No, Bruce Ackerman stated that Obama's position uh, on the War Powers Doctrine specifically lacks a solid legal foundation. By adopting it, the White House had shattered the traditional legal process the executive branch has developed to sustain the rule of law over the past 75 years. So, yeah, people were pissed, but it didn't matter. No, no, it's no, that's not. I disagree with you wholeheartedly there, because where is all that talk when we talk about Obama's legacy? And where is that criticism of Trump right now? Right? Because think about it. The left is slamming Trump for virtually everything. But when Syria came around, everybody was like, let's go to Syria. <laughs> exactly, man. It was, it, it was a completely different ball of wax back in the day. And what I'm saying is they're not afraid of us voting them out based on their, their foreign military policy anymore. Why? Because of yellow ribbons and shit. Because of support the troops. Because it's really hard for you to come out and say, hey, we don't need to do this war because they hold up this starving person from Rwanda or they hold up you're not supporting the troops mm -hmm. or they hold up this or that and this, you know. And, and so I'm saying that isolationism or intervention, uh, intervention or, or military foreign policy needs to get back into the limelight of a top three issue with like every candidate. Agreed. With every congressional person. It's sunk. I know we have domestic problems. I get that. I know that we have this crazy culture war going on and all this stuff. And I, I, taxes, you name it, we've got problems. But that's a top thing, man. That is a top and flight thing. How the fuck can the party of the hippies uh, now be so pro-war? Yeah. How does that work? Easily. I <laughs> Easily. Because think of, for all the, 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 the stomping and pissing in the wind about Iraq, they were right there and voted for it. Yeah. 
You know what I mean? I, and they can say whatever they want. Oh, I didn't support it like the next year. What I don't give a shit, man. Like when in this country, when somebody's like, they're they're trying to threaten our way of life, everyone gets on board. And you know what? That's really cool, like in a sense that we unite. <laughs> it's really cool that we have the ability to unite that like that for a common together. goal. Right, right. You know, like what we did in World War II was amazing. Like the way the industry went up, everybody enlisted, you know what I'm saying? But it's also really dangerous because of shit like this. Because we're not going to call them to task if they can give us just a passing justification for why we should be in Somalia for coming up on 20 years. Yeah. I'm sorry, coming up on 30 years. Yeah. So it's, it's terrifying to me. And that's why I want to, I feel like you have to advocate for isolationism. Yeah. I, I understand where you're coming from, but to me, it's like, if you're trying to climb a mountain you know, there, there are crags and crevices and you may not have the best ropes and the best carabiners, but at some point, man, you got to try. If you see your neighbor getting beat up in the street by eight people, like, you know, if you jump in, you're probably going to get your ass beat too. But at some point you do it, you know? So, so I guess my question to you is like, can you really stand? Can you really advocate for just standing by and, and, you know, watching a genocide take place? Well, what do you do? <laughs> See now there you could have you could have you could have asked me that like back, you know, at point two, like hardcore. <laughs> and that would have that would have kind of unraveled all this because this is a bit of a dog and pony show, right? Because no, I can't. I I, I can't if I know that Assad is using chemical weapons on his own people, I want us to do something about it. But actually, let me let me clarify that a little bit. I want the world to do something about it. And I think that's kind of the distinction that I'm making. It's not that I, I'm not, again, I'm not Rand Paul. It's not that I think that we should never go anywhere to do anything. I'm not that brand of isolationist. I'm saying that the situation has deteriorated to the point where I feel like we need to pull back. And I think my last point, point six kind of illustrates that. Um, and, and here it is. It says, there is no level of feasible U.S. intervention that can alleviate the world's suffering alone. At some point, we are going to leave folks suffering. Stepping back carries a reasonable expectation that other countries will move to help, probably via the U.N. This would not only get us away from U.S. Uh, hegemony, but allow us to better gauge what our fair share of the burden is. So, when I say advocate for isolationism, it, it's tough because I'm not saying that we just, you know, flat out drop everything. There are still instances where I would say, yes, we should go in. Yes, we should do something. But the, the approach we're taking has to change. And I don't just mean as far as doctrines. I mean in the citizens' mind state, sure. in the world. This whole America is just going to come through and fix it. Fuck it. That's not going to work anymore. Like it, it's, it's just led us down a path of horrific and, things. And by that same vein, I think even if we step back and say, allow the UN to, to do its job of world policing, I don't think the UN does a great job either. Yeah, no, no. You know? So like, at what point do you intervene and stop the UN from, you know, creating violent radical <laughs> regimes? Well, without, without <laughs> launching into another episode, I'm no big fan of the UN either. <laughs> But, but it's, not, it's not so much, I said probably via the UN, but it's not so much about the UN. What I'm saying is I want Germany and the United Kingdom and Japan to deal with this shit, get their hands dirty, and, and them have to answer these tough questions. And, them you know, and then us like reassess as, as, a, as a global community, like how we go forward with stuff like this, how right. do we decide stuff like this? And that scares the hell out of me because I'm, I'm by no means a globalist, but at the same time, I'm tired of taking shit for us screwing up stuff and I'm tired of screwing up stuff. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's got to stop somewhere, man. Yeah. It's, it's really hard to, to make the argument for it. As I found out today, I, <laughs> yeah. I tried really hard um, to make the argument you know, based on the history and, and the argument's not there based on the history. Yeah, so in not. order for it to work, shit's got to change. And, and, you know, maybe we, maybe we walk halfway back maybe we walk yeah. three quarters of the way. Well, back. And maybe we don't, you know, maybe the American populace decides, eh, economy's good. Gas prices are down. <laughs> Fuck it. 
Drop yeah. some more bombs, fellas. Well, I mean, s- speaking of walking halfway, like we I- talk about radicalizing people, you know, that our military intervention radicalizing people, but we haven't had a terrorist attack on U.S. soil for some time. You know, a radical Muslim terrorist attack on, for quite some time. On U.S., I'm all for the defense of U.S. soil. Right. That, well, yeah. that's what I'm saying. Yeah, that's yeah, that's yeah, my right, point. Right, so right. we talk about, you know, the results of, of intervention, radicalizing people. Uh, maybe maybe America decides, well, our defense is good enough. We don't care. Well, I, I hope not. You know, I mean, maybe they do, but I hope not. I will. I will say this. In the interest of, of you said walk halfway, I will walk halfway on this. And I will say that the ideology of isolationism is sometimes applied uh, by some people of just straight up do nothing, completely contract within our borders, don't participate in the global community. All, it's utter horseshit. It's, it's unworkable. Uh, as much as I would love for us to be the fierce independent nation that we want to be, uh, even before NAFTA, that ship sailed. You know, I'll so take I that mean, as a halfway win. Yeah, man. Yeah. <laughs> I'll take that as a halfway win on this episode. Honestly, so so no, I mean, I I do I do concede that, but I, I'm saying there has to be a revolutionary change in American thinking in regards to military intervention. Absolutely. Um, however, uh, speaking of people that I would not mind putting on the drone strike list. Uh, beans. Hey, hey. <laughs> boom, 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 beans. <laughs> what have you got pew, for pew, us pew, today? Pew, pew, pew. Uh, beans, beans, beans. Are are you asleep? Oh my god. Uh, I don't want to go to school, dude. Did you just sleep through the whole fucking episode? Jesus, man. Beans, take the headphones off. Dude, did you did you just sleep through the whole episode? Oh, oh my my bad, fellas. <laughs> I was just trying to isolate myself in this episode. Dude, you've got a contractual obligation to deliver us a, a ending segment for the yeah, show. Yeah, we, we need are, a segment, dude. What are you gonna do? Um, since in theory suck, they uh, uh they screwed stuff up. <laughs> Jesus. Christ. Oh my god! All right, you know, k- kill it. Just, just, just end the damn episode. Beans, man, what, what, what were you listening to? Jesus. This is world class producer and fact checker extraordinaire Beanzo of the Sense and Theory podcast. I want to thank you all for suffering through each show to hear the righteous takedowns I drop on the fellas. Please go like and review us on iTunes. It'll mean a lot to the guys, but more importantly, it'll help keep your old buddy Beanzo on the air. There's links to all our social media in the description, and feel free and tell the fellas how wrong they were at Sense and Theory Podcast at gmail.com. Tune in next week to hear Sense and Theory get all up in they feels when I burn all their hard work down again. Beanzo out.